putting up with me in the pulpit again. I always enjoy it. Um, where's, where'd Daniel get to? See? Oh. Can someone give me a bottle of water or a, a water or something? I got a bunch of them in my Jeep, so that would have been. Um, today we're going to talk about a topic which uh, it's not talked about enough in the church in general, the, in the broader sense of Western Christianity. I, I work at, I'm the international director at Set Free Ministries, now rebranded as Set Free, uh, Set Free Global. Global, it sounds more efficient. I'm the director of Set Free Global rather than I'm the international director at Set Free Ministries. It's just, it seems like I got a promotion, but they didn't give me any more money. So um, Set Free Ministries, we deal a lot with uh, spiritual warfare. It's one of the neglected topics in the church at large. And we have, that was started out over 20 years ago, almost 30 years ago now, with the intention of teaching these things to the churches. And penetrating that denominational firewall has been, has been very difficult. Uh, I personally am an ordained Baptist pastor, fundamental independent Baptist, and uh, try getting this topic into a Baptist church. Okay, I was a missionary on, for 15 years on the field of Brazil, uh, and this reality was completely denied. In fact, when I came back one time for a missionary enrichment conference, when we were back in the States, all the missionaries had to go to this conference, and there was a workshop on spiritual warfare. And I'm like, finally, somebody at the mission gets it. And I go to sign up for this conference, and I, I go to the workshop. And it was about how nothing is actually the activity of the enemy. It's all just interpersonal relationship conflicts and communication deficiencies, and, and the devil doesn't have an influence on your ministry. Who planted that guy in that conference? You know, I, I walked out in the first break. I just kept shaking my head. I couldn't believe it. But for 15 years, I saw people torn apart because they didn't know that they were in a fight. They didn't know they were in a battle. And that battle was raging all around them. And they couldn't hear the bullets. They couldn't hear the explosions. They couldn't hear what was going on in their lives. And they had no concept of how to exist in that environment. And many in the Western church here in the United States, they believe, well, yeah, Satan does that out, out there. Satan's doing that in Africa and South America and, and Asia and, and places like that. But that doesn't happen here. In fact, I just dealt with a man the other day who was on the mission field and was severely attacked by the enemy. And I... Uh, he went to his pastor with what was happening, and his pastor, not to slam on the Baptist, but I am one, so I can say this. He says, Satan can't influence your thoughts. Really? I mean, it's like, what New Testament does he read? I don't know. Okay, but there's, it's my job to teach these things internationally. This is what I do. This is my role in life now, okay? And there's two ruts in the road. There's the the Western mindset rut, which says that all things spiritual are somehow distant and less real than the here and now, than the things that are physical. There's this, that, yeah, Satan exists probably as a concept of moral evil rather than an actual being who is against us. There's that, and to me, that's like saying there's a big difference between stepping on a Lego and stepping on a picture of a Lego, Right? You step on a Lego, you know it right away. You step on a picture of a Lego, it's not the, you know, no level of pain there. And that's what they believe. They believe, well, you know, that, that, that Lego is just a picture of a Lego. It's an idea. It's not an actual person until you meet them, you know. Well, where did all this get started? And what's the best example of it in, in the New Testament? Um, 
Acts chapter 19 talks about Paul being in the city of Ephesus. And I've probably mentioned this before here in the church, but the city of Ephesus, they, that was the city where when they came to Christ, they burned all their scrolls and magic items and all that, and it was like 135 years worth of a man's salary, the value of the stuff that was burned there. And why did that come about? Paul goes into Ephesus, and all of a sudden, he, he knows he has the authority in the name of Jesus to cast out demons just like Jesus did. Now, there were exorcists back in that day, in the first century, both Jewish and pagan exorcists, because demonic possession was a real problem. They knew it, they understand it, they understood it, they didn't uh, debate about this issue, it was just common, it was commonly known. And there are people that say, well, that was their, they didn't understand mental illness back then, and that's what they thought was happening, and Jesus just kind of went along with it. Does that strike you as being biblically viable? I mean, how can you interpret Scripture and say that? That Jesus, well, they, you know, he didn't let them go with any other misconceptions they had. Why would he let that one stand? You know, it was just kind of crazy that people would say that. But when Jesus, when a person who was demonized, that's another thing, this idea of possession is not an all or nothing thing. Okay, the word is demonatsomai in the, in the Greek, had a demon, that's all it said. And it's a question of proximity and degree of influence over that person. It's not an on-off switch. It's not a yes-no thing. It's a matter of degrees of influence that the enemy has in the life of that person. But when a person was severely demonized and Jesus showed up, what did they do? They freaked out. Jesus, are you here to persecute? Are you here to torment us before our time? Instantly, they recognized who he was. And throughout the different encounters that Jesus had with them, he didn't talk to them, he didn't interview them, didn't give them a platform. Basically, his message to them was shut up and leave, okay? Be silent, depart. And people saw this. And in contrast to what the pagans were doing and the Jews, when the Jew Jewish rabbis were trying to exorcise somebody or cast a demon out of somebody, it was a long, drawn-out process. They're citing scriptures. They're bringing up all these different rituals and doing things and you know, incense. And it was, it was loud, and it was long, and it was stressful. And the pagans, the same thing. Okay, when they were trying to do this, it was loud, obnoxious, painful, cutting people. It was, it was horrible. And Jesus basically just said, be silent, depart with a word. And then later, the, his apostles are doing the same thing. He sends out the, the 12, and, and they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he says, don't rejoice at that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Okay, And there's a principle there. We never focus on the enemy. You don't study, you don't learn about the darkness by studying the darkness. And Christians get into that problem all the time where they, they start studying and they want to learn about what the other side is doing. They start studying what they've written. It's a very dangerous thing to do. We are never told to fear the enemy. Not a single verse in Scripture tells us to fear the enemy. We fear God and Him alone. Amen? He alone is all powerful, He alone can search our hearts and minds. Only God. The enemy does not know what you are thinking. He can see what you're doing, and they're great observers. In fact, I had that, that uh, come up with my African pastors in August. I was there teaching systematic theology, and uh, I started out. I said, remember that, that symbol, the yin-yang, where it's got that black teardrop thing swirling around, the white teardrop thing, and there's a black spot and a white spot and all that? And one of the guys says, yeah, that's exactly how it is between God and, and Satan in this world, isn't it? It's like, okay, I'm glad I brought that up at the very beginning because now we got some work to do, okay? And no, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. 
God is the creator of the universe. Everything. Me, you, air, the oceans, everything. He created everything. Everything you experience is created by God. Satan has none of that power. He creates nothing. He can imitate. That's the best as he can do. And he always imitates what God did because God's work is perfect. But it's not like that at all. It's, you know, we have God and then we have this, this insect-like creature, which has a stinger, you know. He does do damage. But I told the guys, you know, when, when Jesus comes at, at his second coming, he's going to destroy the Antichrist, which is Satan impersonated, Satan incarnate on this earth. And he destroys him with the breath of his mouth. That's how he destroys him. With a breath. You're done. Be gone. Be done. We don't ever fear the enemy. We don't ever, and people fear the enemy. My Africans, they fear everything about the enemy. They've been steeped in this culture of witchcraft their entire lives, and they, they can't get it out of their heads that they have, in order to minister the gospel there, they feel they have to appease the enemy. That's how steeped in it they are. Um, they have every negative thing that happens, they have a demonic causality. They believe a demon caused that. I call it the demon of flat soda. It's like we had a church picnic and all the soda went flat. And the demon of flat soda came. That's, like, that's how they're thinking. And it's like, no, guys, you left the caps off the bottles, you know, and the soda went flat. You know, there's not everything that happens has a demonic causality. So there's these two extremes. There's the one where they believe Satan can't affect you at all, and then they have the other side, which Satan, everything is, is related to him in some way. And the church at Ephesus was definitely on that side of the, of the ledger. And when Paul comes in, he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ, and it's happening with no fanfare, no drama, no big show. Okay, he just deals with it. The, and then the Jewish exorcists, remember, they tried to use that name? They're like, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we command you to depart. And the demon spoke to him. The, the demon says, Jesus I know. Paul I know about. But who are you? In other words, you're not in Christ. You're not, you're, your sins have not been paid for. You're still in rebellion, and you're trying to tell me, who is above you in this rebellion, what to do. And they get beaten up. And then when the, the city of Ephesus sees this, that's when they burn all their, their scrolls and all that, and they repent of the deeds that they had done. Um, basically, the church at Ephesus, a lot of those people in that church comprised people who had come out of the occult. And we know it's set, set free there. One of the stages there is to renounce the occult. One of the first things we do with somebody after making sure they're a believer is to renounce the occult and any involvement in the occult. Because it is, it is the biggest doorway that allows the enemy to operate in the life of a, of a believer, is involvement, dabbling in the occult. And there's a lot of things uh, that people do they don't even realize they're doing. You know, Parker Brothers makes Ouija boards. You can go to Toys R Us, or you know, they're closed now, but you can go to any of those tourist stores and actually buy a full-fledged Ouija board. Oh, it's just, a, it's just a thing, you know, no one... Absolute poison in the spiritual world where there's people that do these things. Um, so the church at Ephesus was the church that had come out of the occult, come out of the darkness, and that comes with a lot of spiritual baggage. That comes with a lot, you know, the enemy fights to get people back in who've left that, okay? And uh, Timothy was the pastor at the church of Ephesus. 
So when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, and then he writes to Timothy, he's writing to the church of Ephesus or the pastor of Ephesus. And I want to take a look at a couple things that he said to Timothy and compare these to how we're living right now. Compare these things to the world that we live in. Okay, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been sealed as with a hot iron. Seared as with a hot iron. Okay, I want you to notice something there. Deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Clearly reveals that the enemy has the power to communicate to Christians. It's a deceiving spirit. That spirit is speaking. He's deceiving I've never been deceived by a mime. They speak, you have to speak. You have to lie to me to deceive me. I have to buy into what you're saying in order to be deceived. Okay, just like the demon in, in Acts, Paul, I, or Jesus I know, Paul I've heard about. Okay, Jesus I know, that's the word for experiential knowledge, having seen him face to face kind of thing. And Paul I've heard about, that's like I got a letter about him. Someone told me secondhand, about this person, that he had no experiential knowledge of Paul and never encountered him, but he'd heard about him. So how did he hear about him? Who told him that? Other demons. They communicate with each other. They can also communicate with us. Things taught by demons. The word there is doctrines, literally doctrines of demons. Teachings, doctrines of demons. And if you look at the church today, It's really scary what people are saying from pulpits in this country about the Word of God, about sin. Sin doesn't matter. We love everybody. Come as you are. Stay as you are. Leave unchanged. That's not the gospel. It's, yes, come as you are. Listen to what God did for you and live a transformed life as a result of it. That some of the things you're doing, you got to stop doing. There is sin. Sin has an impact on your life. It's pure poison. It destroys you. Come as you are in the state of being destroyed and leave in that state is not the gospel. And you can put whatever sin you want to put in there. I'm sure there's a church that will cater to your needs. Doctrines of demons. It's scary. And if we don't stand on the word of God, if we don't know the word of God and say, yeah, no, that has, that has taken a different path. That has deviated from the truth. 1 Timothy 6, verse 4 and 5. Speaking of the hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared, Okay, as with the hot iron. He's going back to the same topic there. They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Prosperity gospel right there. Godliness is a means of financial gain. If I do something right, that God's going to pour out money into my life. That God's got a blessing for me, and that blessing is something apart from Jesus Christ. That blessing is stuff. It's money. It's prestige. It's power. God died on the cross to give me stuff. And that, in Africa, oh my goodness, that is the default setting of the African church. And when I speak there, I always bring it up. And 
I have this illustration I use for evangelism a lot when, when I'm dealing with people that believe in works. And I say, if, if my son died and his heart was taken out of his chest and placed into your son's chest to live, and you came to me and said, Lord, you know, Pastor Mac, I want to I write you a check and make it right. Give me, I'm going to write you a check, okay, and, and pay for that heart. Okay, adding works to the sacrifice of Christ, it's an ugly look, isn't it? To think, oh, yeah, he gave me his son, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay it off. I'm going to pay off that debt that he paid for me. He ransomed me. I'm going to pay him back in installments or something. No, it's not a good look. And that's why I usually use that. And I was talking about that in, in Africa to our, our teachers, and all of a sudden the Lord just gave me a different idea about the prosperity gospel. And it's like going to God, and you know, if, if my son died and his heart was placed into your son's chest that he might live, and you came to me and said, you know, Daniel's not driving his car anymore. Can we have his car? You know, I know you gave us his heart and all that, but, you know, we were really hoping to get his car. My son just bought a car, so I can use this illustration now. You know, he, he's got some nice clothes, too. Can we have his clothes? You know, he's got money in the bank. Can we have his money? Now, the heart's all fine and good, yeah, but we really want his stuff. Prosperity gospel. Jesus Christ is dying on the cross there, and you're down there casting lots for his clothing. That's the important thing that you see here going on in the prosperity gospels. Yeah, stuff, money. Let's cast the lots for, for that, that tunic there. You know, the Son of God is dying here for the sins of all mankind, and you're focused on his shirt. Wow, that's a nice shirt. That's the prosperity gospel. That's a doctrine of demons, which has worked its way through the church. And these guys are conceited, and where you see them in action, you see envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between people of corrupt mind. I've gone to that church. I have gone to that church. I'm not going to name names, but I have been a member of that church. Envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction, and people of corrupt minds. Guys, we're living in these days. We are living in these days. Two more. He says to Timothy, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people." Man, and I'm looking around today. It's hard to have nothing to do with those people because they're everywhere. God forbid that we have that profile ourselves. At some point, we've got to take a stand and say, I am going to be different than the people of this world. You know, for me personally, I was like the liberal left politics, the wokeisms, all that stuff. I used to get really, really angry about that. I'd listen to it on TV, and I could just, oh, I feel this anger about it. Okay. They're lost. They're lost, and they're confused. They're buying into lies left and right. They're speaking lies left and right, and they're lost, and they're going to die and go to hell. And what are you going to do about it, missionary? What are you going to do about it? Is your point to hate these people because of their politics and vote a certain way to counteract their politics? Are you here to represent Jesus Christ in your community, in your life, and lead these people to Christ and to love them in a way that they understand they're being loved? Ooh. And I've stopped watching it. I don't tune into those programs and things like that and just get myself all worked up because 
I'm not called to be bitter and unforgiving, right? right? We're called to be the exact opposite and show them love. And we are in a battle, and that battle is for your mind. That battle is to get you bitter and worked up. You see, the enemy's tactics, what the enemy does, he'll come up and he'll, he'll cause somebody else, he'll influence somebody else to hurt you and then influence you to hate them. He plays both sides of it, okay? Because your bitterness and unforgiveness is every bad as a, of a sin in the eyes of God as what that person did to you. That's why we forgive. That's why we release those people to God. That's why we don't walk around in bitterness and hatred and all that. It's extremely important that we understand that we are in this fight. And we get punked every day. If you forget it. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather, turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And again, I see this time and time again. You know, when I went to Brazil as a missionary, there was so much error being taught in churches there that if I spent one Sunday a month teaching against the error, I, there's not enough weeks in the year. There's only 52 Sundays in a year. And I could spend every day talking about what other churches were doing, which were just bonkers. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to teach the Word of God. I'm going to teach people the truth and pound the scriptures into the people of this church so that they will be able to see the error. Amen. I had a woman come to me one time. She says, Pastor Mac, I was at such and such a church, and when I was there, everybody fell down on the ground and were barking like dogs. What is that? I don't know. I have no idea what that is. Do you see that in your New Testament? Do you see that in the book of Acts? Do you see that and we're commanded to do this? Well, no, I don't. So what are they doing? I said, I don't know what they're doing. But I know it has nothing to do with Christianity, right? It has nothing to do with Christianity. I have no idea what it is. It's not my job to tell you what that is. It's my job to tell you the truth. It's my job to point to a scripture. So we go back to those two ruts. We've got this one rut where the, my, a lot of my Baptist brothers are completely blind to what's going on. The heads in the sand won't look at it, won't take a fresh look at Scripture. And then I've got people over on the other side which are charismatic and ignore Scripture entirely, and they're taking things from other sources, and they're practicing spiritual warfare in a manner which is absolutely ungodly and ineffective. In fact, it's damaging to the people that do it. So apply it to our life. This is not a thing you know. It's a thing you do. As a wilderness survival instructor, I can teach everybody how to do certain things, make fire, shelter, water in the bush, okay, from what you have around you. And you can have all that knowledge in your head, and you find yourself in a survival situation, and you don't do it. It means nothing. All that money you paid me for that course, if you don't actually do it, it doesn't exist. Okay, and too much of what we teach in churches and too much of what we do is informational. We have an informational, information-based church culture where we're going to hear things and we're going to know them, right? We know these things. But until we do them, they're not real. Until we engage with them, they're not real. Confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9, right? What is that all dependent upon? Confession. You confess your sins. 
you don't go to them and say, I'm sorry. You're saying, yeah, I did that. I repent of that. Please forgive me. But I did that. And then what happens next? Is the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace come in? That cleansing happens. Things change. Spiritual warfare is the same way. This is not something for you to know. It's something for you to do. Because Satan's not just attacking you in theory. He's not firing blanks. And this isn't a practice world, you know? You don't get a do-over. He's destroying your family actively. He has a plan for your life. He's going to act it out. We're not to fear him, but we do. You know, Paul says we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. Yeah, we are. In the Western world, we are totally ignorant of the devil's schemes to the point where we have people at workshops, admissions agencies, saying the devil doesn't do anything. That's enforced ignorance. That's ignorance being taught. That's the word of God being countered in a place which is sending out missionaries. And believe me, I saw them get destroyed. My own family got destroyed. And we did not have the kind of support we needed to be in the place that we were. And it was scary. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And understand that Ephesians chapter 6 is not Ephesians chapter 1. Paul spent an awful lot of time in the book already setting up what he's going to say here. You know, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians don't, in, don't contain a single commandment of anything that you're supposed to do. Not one thing. He tells them, it takes three chapters, half of this book, just teaching the church in Ephesus who they are in Christ. Who they are. He, is, he, he, he defines them in Christ. And you can go through and read through the, those three chapters at some point and realize Paul isn't telling us, okay, based upon all that I've told you about you, now you're equipped, now you know who you are, and now you can act. And then this is within that part of the book, in chapter 6 now, he's telling them of, to be geared up for the spiritual fight. And remember, these are people that came out of the occult, they burned their scrolls, they continue to have these problems. He tells to their pastor, in the latter days, you're going to see people will be a mess, the church will be a mess, doctrines of demons, deceiving spirits, people abandoning the faith, and folks were there. So that message of them is, given to them is absolutely appropriate for today, that we are in that fight. Now, here's the thing about fights. You don't get to choose your battle. Okay, unless you're like Hamas and deciding to go off and do some atrocity, you don't get to do that. You don't get to start fights. The fight is started all around you. You don't get to... We don't use violence. And he brings that up here. Okay? We don't start fights. We don't go off and attack other people. I don't feel the need to attack other churches, what they believe. My personal belief on denominations is they're all absolutely wrong in their very own way. Okay? Every denomination has got something wrong and something to contribute. And you listen and you, you say, okay, that's, wow, I've never seen it that way. And I, now I'm edified and like, oh, they're off on that. What? You know what I mean? It's like, ah, I'm not going to do that. So you, we take the good they are contributing and don't fight about these things. So who, who am I to judge the servant of another? You know? I'm not going to tell that you know, Eastern Orthodox guy where he's all wrong. I'll listen to what he has to say, okay, and tell him what I believe. 
And we engage that way, but I'm not going to fight with somebody who's also redeemed by the blood of Christ, right? Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17, finally, okay, now he's coming to a point here. Based upon everything we've talked about, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The first thing we need to know about spiritual warfare is it does not, upon, does not depend upon the strength of you. You don't come with the power to do this. You are dependent. It's interesting when Paul uh, heals a man at one point in Acts, he sees that the man has faith to be healed, and he says, stand up. You there, stand up. He doesn't say in the name of Jesus, stand up. He just says it. When he's confronting with Elimus, the sorcerer, who's twisting you know, the ear of the, of the man that he's trying to influence, he says, now you will be blind for a time. Okay, And he blinds the man spiritually, blinds his eyes. And he doesn't say in Jesus' name. Okay, these are, This is Paul using his gift of healing, Paul using his gift of uh, the, the, his position as an apostle okay, to do those things in what God has given him already the power to do. But when he turns to the slave girl to cast out the demon, he says, in the name of Jesus, depart from her. He uses delegated authority. And delegated authority is like a, you see these uh, third world cities where they got like six lanes of traffic going, you know, at an intersection. It's all these cars moving about. And there's this little, you know, Asian woman in the, you know, smart little uniform. She's got the white gloves and she goes, and several hundred thousand tons of traffic just stops. Then she goes like this, and they move. And that's not power, that's authority. And everybody knows, if we disobey this undersized person in the middle of that intersection, we could all roll right over that we, what's going to happen to us. So she has the power, to the, the authority to do that. But that's not the exercise of power. She's not stopping it's funny, in Uganda, in Kampala, the traffic is the craziest thing in the world. It's just cars going every which way, and it's just, you think it's just, how are they surviving this traffic? It's terrifying to drive in Kampala. But nobody's angry. They're just doing this, and everybody is totally chill. It's amazing. At one point, my director was driving down the road, and they're driving the wrong side of the road there, you know. He sees that the lane is open in the oncoming lane, and he thinks, oh, I'm going to get hit. So he pulls out of that and drives down this hill and up, and all of a sudden the traffic comes up. And, and we're on the wrong side of the road. And he goes, this is Ugandan traffic road, road rage. <laughs> That's all he did. He looks at the guy, and he's in the wrong, and he goes, like this. And the other guy goes, like this. Not a word was said. He's, we went left, he went right. But authority and power are different things. And delegated authority always has a jurisdiction as well. Okay, like as a father, you have authority over your children, right? You don't have authority over all children. Correct? As a pastor, you have authority in your own church. You don't have authority over Christendom. Everyone. You've been given, a, you've been charged with a duty. And everything in which you have, you will be evaluated by God or judged by God for your performance, he gives you the authority to carry that out in everything that you need to do. As a parent, you have authority to parent your children. You have the authority to make decisions in their lives and carry them out. In fact, God requires you to take authority over your children and to raise them in a godly manner, Right? So authority as a parent only exists when you exercise it. If I, don't, if I have 
and my son is, is unruly, and I don't tell him, Daniel, knock it off, stop that. No, we're not going to cross the street here. We're gonna, you're going to do what I say. If I don't call him on the carpet when he was little, I have the authority. He even believes I have the authority, but if I don't use it, it doesn't exist. It never happened. Okay? So he says here, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So there is power. Where does that power come from? Not you. You stand in it, but it's not of you. You understand that? And we think, oh, I'm so weak. I have nothing. How can I engage in spiritual battle? What do I bring to this fight? Obedience and submission is what you bring to this fight. Okay, James 4, 7 says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Wow. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first thing is I need to be submitted to God, and, and, and to it, it right, my sin is right with God. Okay? You can't go to Satan's strip club and kick him out. You don't have authority to work there. You have authority to do what God's called you to do, and if he comes after you and tries to stop you, no. Now I have the authority. But we do that from a place of submission to God where I'm not walking in sin. I am not disobeying my Heavenly Father. From that place, we can resist Satan. You can't resist and rebel. You can't be in rebellion against God and resist the devil. Nope, you walk right into his camp, and he's going to kick your butt. He's going to claim a place in your life. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, your anger, so you don't give the devil a foothold. What is that foothold? The Greek word there is topos, a place. And it's in literally like a place in the line of battle. It's a place of proximity that I now have a place right here, okay? I'm close. I'm in the house now, right? I gave him that opportunity through sin. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That person who is saying those horrible things or that person who is double-dipped in sin and living that horrible lifestyle is not your enemy. They're dead. They have not passed over from death into life. And God's wrath remains on them. And in a spiritual battle, when we fire our spiritual weapons, people come back to life. People come back to life. They come back to Jesus. They get regenerated. They come to life. They... And we're not engaging in this fight. You know, I've, I've actually seen people use this to talk about... Uh, that Christians can never engage in self-defense or violence or act or work in the military or as police officers, and that's absolutely a very, very weak and poor reading of this text. You know, we're saved from the fires of hell, aren't we, as believers? Got a fire extinguisher right there, though. Why? Because though we are saved from the fires of hell, we are not immune from the effects of fire on this earth. Buildings burn down. Christians' homes burn down. We have to fight fire when it's necessary, okay? Just as in a society, we do, there are people we do have to struggle against. There are people that do horrible things, and we don't have to let them do that. 
okay? But advancing the kingdom of Christ is not a matter of sword point conversions, rounding people up, putting them in re-education camps and things like that. Other, other belief systems do that. We don't. Okay, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Never regard another human being as an enemy. I saw a wonderful video the other day of a Hamas terrorist who came to Christ. Wow, I needed to see that. I really did. Because I'm watching what's going on and that anger's coming back. And, you know, I needed to see that Jesus Christ reaches into terrorist organizations and redeems men for him. That's powerful stuff. Okay, no, we don't advance the kingdom of Christ by attacking other people. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, verse 12, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And again, I'm going to try and challenge your Western mindset that spiritual realm is not some distant, far-off place. It's right here and right now. When, when Satan was tempting Jesus in the desert, he said something very interesting. He said, this world belongs to me, and to whoever I will, I give it. He's not talking about some concept of some distant place. He's not in some far-off area that we can safely ignore. No, he's right here, right now, influencing world events. This world belongs to me, and to whoever I will, I give it. And you look at who runs the world. And that, those, his fingerprints are all over that, right? The, the corruption, the evil that's going up. And I used to think that there was a human hierarchy, and you find somebody at the top. But what happens is that, that goes up into the spiritual realm. You know, the top, he's at the top of this rebellious world system, and he's operating it through his demons and all that, who's got their hooks into all kinds of people in human society, and they're doing horrible things, treating each other horribly, hating Christians, hating Jews, genocide, gas chambers, all that stuff. Where does that come from? Come from the human heart? Well, the human heart that's been twisted by a very diabolical enemy. And we come to the light in the midst of that occupied place. We are no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. We are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but in the kingdom of light. We're no longer under Satan's authority, but under Christ's authority. We're no longer in death, we're in life. All these things pertain to us. This is who we are. This is the, the things that Paul was talking about in those first three chapters of Ephesians. Who are you in Christ? Who are you really? You know, we, people try and identify us and, and tell us who we are all the time. And the, the enemy is right at the top of that telling people who they are. And God says, no, you are my child. You are adopted as a child in his family. God's not treating you like one of his own kids, right? There's this, there's this faithless uh, half acceptance of these things. And my Baptist brothers would call them positional truths, okay? As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. I asked one of my former professors recently, I said, are you dearly loved by God? Absolutely. Are you holy? Mm, I'm getting there. No. God just called you holy when he called you dearly loved as well, right? And we, we think, well, I'm working towards that. God sees me as being holy. Oh, so in his opinion, I'm holy. You know, if you ask, if you have surgery and the, 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 you ask, have these instruments been sterilized? And the doctor says, well, in my opinion, yeah. That's not what I asked. You know what I mean? I don't ask for your opinion. I want, I want knowledge here. I want facts. You can't call somebody holy if, in fact, they are not. God just regards me as holy when I'm not? No, he made me fully holy. Now I'm living that out. I'm learning to live as one who is holy. 
God doesn't promise to adopt me as a son. He adopted me. Now he's training me to live as the son that I am, right? All these different things, okay? This is where we're at here, okay? These spiritual beings and spiritual realms and rulers and authorities and powers of the dark spiritual forces of evil, these are satanic ranks of authority that have influence over societies. Everything which is in rebellion against God is under their thumb. So you watch the news. If, if this culture is in rebellion against God, guess who's controlling it? Our society in rebellion against God. You want to hear a horrible thing? This thing that happened with Hamas and all that, and they're killing Israeli babies in their cribs? It's despicable, isn't it? I hate to say it, but abortion is legal in Israel. And their society's been killing Jewish babies in the womb. And we're blind to what's going on in our own world. Yeah, killing babies, that's disgusting. It's horrible. Yeah, it's horrible everywhere. And we turn a blind eye to that. And now we're bombing Gaza over the other. You know, it's, you got to say there's a little cognitive dissonance going on there. And people are blind to it. But we're struggling against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms which have a definite impact on the life we live around us and can attack us. Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand your ground and stand. It's interesting that he uses both of those. Okay, what's he talking about there? Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to, having done everything, to stand... Let me get it right here. Therefore, put on the full armor of God that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Okay, stand your ground, do everything, and stand. Kind of a strange picture, but what is, what is he talking about? Stand your ground, okay, means you've been assigned a territory, a place to defend. Okay, this sector of fire is yours. This line, this position in the line of battle is the place where you are to hold. You do not get pushed back off this place, okay? And having done everything in the battle as we're fighting and warring, and I'm not getting pushed back in my line of battle, and my brothers are not as well, and we are going to advance, and we're going to take this position, okay? And then having done everything to stand. But at the end of this battle, we're still going to be on our feet. You get it? To stand your ground, defend your place, defend your position, and at the end of it, after you've done everything to stand, to still be on your feet, to still be alive and awake and uninjured in the battle. But it depends upon the full armor of God. You don't get to choose your battles. You don't get to decide if you're going to take part in this or not. Your enemy is going to attack you. In Israel, just recently, a lot of those kibbutz, it's like a almost like a farm and gated community kind of put together, some of those were attacked and totally decimated, literally decimated, one in ten people being killed in them. And others fought off their attackers because every one of those kibbutz has, a, has an armory, has a, a security team, not heavily armed. They've got a few rifles, a few pistols, a shotgun or two, you know, but they were organized and they actually fought off their attackers. And they did that. They stood their ground and at the end of the fight were standing. And hundreds of people, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then. Again, we got that word stand. Stand firm. Okay, that's standing in a fighter's stance. 
you know, you see two guys going to box, what do they do? They get in that, they get in that, that firm stance. They, they're going to launch their punches. Guys don't just walk up, hey, yeah. You know what I mean? There's, there's standing and then there's standing. Just being on your feet doesn't mean you're standing. Being, being alert and awake and understanding what's going on, being prepared for what's about to come, that's standing firm. Knowing that we're going to be attacked. Knowing that this church might be attacked. Not, maybe not physically, but certainly everything we speak about here is being attacked, discarded, worked against. There are churches that have people come in the back door to protest what's going on. As an aside, we do have a security team here, okay, and myself and a few others. Um, I'm not really worried about somebody coming through and blasting the congregation. That, that's like the ultimate worst fear we could have, right? That's the worst thing that could happen, but it's statistically very, very rare, okay? What's much more common is that somebody in the congregation has a restraining order out against somebody else, an ex, a boyfriend or whatever, and that person's waiting in the parking lot for you to come out. Okay, so if anybody here is going through an interpersonal relationship that involves a restraining order, please tell me. Okay, and every day after service is winding up, I or someone else walks out and looks in the parking lot to see if anyone's waiting there. It's just a precaution. Okay, like we have a fire extinguisher over there in case the fire breaks out. We have people alert to keeping this place safe. Okay, so sometimes we do struggle against flesh and blood. All right, but the far greater danger that all of us are facing is this spiritual fight and not knowing how to walk out in there fully armored. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Okay, so we've been through the who and the what. Who, we're against the dark powers of this dark world. The what, stand your ground to stand. Remember James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And now the how. The belt of truth. Hmm. Have you been discouraged recently watching the news and knowing, what is this is true? How much of this is actually the truth? You know, you hear one news company saying one thing, the other one's saying the exact opposite. How do you know the truth? And I was praying about this. And Lord, what is the truth? And the answer came through loud and clear. I'm the truth. Okay. I'll stick there. I was involved in a political discussion not too long ago. Two other guys were talking about They asked my opinion. I said, oh, I'm just going to write in Jesus on my ballot. That's who I want to run this country. Jesus Christ, you know. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth. That word for truth there in the Greek is not merely truth as it's spoken, truth of idea, reality, sincerely, sincerity, truth in the moral sphere, divine truth revealed to man, straightforwardness, the truth. I heard a, a, a Navy SEAL was talking about when they went to Afghanistan and there were some practices the Afghanis did, excuse me, which were horrible child abuse, horrible. And when they caught one of their officers doing horrible things to a young boy, uh, the guys tuned him up. The SEALs just took this Afghani, and in no uncertain terms, we're talking diplomacy by other means here, you know, beat him up. And they were severely reprimanded by the Obama or the administration uh, that was over them. I forget which administration it was, but they were severely reprimanded for this cultural interference and he said, at some point, you have to be secure enough in your own culture and in your own understanding of right and wrong and in your own morals and why you have those morals to act upon those morals. 
And that's the belt of truth. That's us saying, no, this is the word of God. I don't care what the world's saying, okay? I know the word. I know the word of God. I know that God is true. Jesus is true. He has revealed truth to me, and I'm going to be faithful to that which I know. I am girded about by truth. I did make decisions based upon actual information, which is true. And we have to be confident in our own, the, the revealed word of God, and say, yes, let God be true and every man a liar. I'm not in agreement with what they're saying. And I'm doing this for a reason, because God has shown me this way. And I have the confidence in him and his word to act upon that, the belt of truth. That holds up everything that we do. And these aren't spiritual things that we have to, you know, ask God to give us the, the belt of truth. No, we have it. We have to believe it. McLaren, a Bible expositor, says this, Absolute sincerity and transparent truthfulness may well be regarded as the girdle, which encloses and keeps secure every other Christian grace and virtue. Just as the girdle or the belt held up the legionary's armor in its place, and if that worked loose or was carelessly fastened, the breastplate would be sure to get out of position, so all the subsequent graces largely depend for their vigorous exercise on the prime virtue of truthfulness. We do this because it's true. We obey the word of God because it is true. We don't just believe it to be true. It is true whether we believe it or not. It is truth. He is the truth. Okay, and every time we depart from it, things get wonky. The breastplate of righteousness. This is righteousness, justice, refers to what is deemed right by the Lord after his own examination, what is approved in his eyes. Job 29 says this, I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice was my robe and my turban. Clothed in righteousness. This is not only what God, God's justice and what God determines is right, but my walking in that. I am personally walking, living a righteous life. That I am avoiding sin. I am looking at myself, examining myself. That, Lord, if there's any evil way in me, please, let's get rid of this. I am growing in the faith. I am walking in righteousness, applying God's standards to my life. I am living out this reality. You cannot fight the enemy and participate with him at the same time. And people open their lives to sin. Okay, I'll throw this statistic out there. 65% of American men involve themselves with porn at least once a month. 67%, 53% of pastors. Oh, guys, let it never be. It's one of the number one problems we deal with. At set free, as people are going through their lives, and it's this inventory of confession and repentance, and then we get to, to porn, and it's a thing, it's a big thing, and it is intensely destructive. Righteousness as a breastplate. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. You see, these images are, are being brought forward into the New Testament from the Old Testament. These are things that, that people knew. And now Paul's just condensing that whole, all those passages into one place and talking about these things. Righteousness as a breastplate. You know, there was a point in my career where I was accused of something. Okay, my, my wife and I were accused of something in Brazil. It was absolutely not true. It wasn't happening. Okay, and I realized, wow, the devil's got to make something up to accuse us with. That's a good thing. You know what I mean? If, if, if the devil can, can look at your life and he's got some piece of truth, something you're doing in life, you're involved in, and accuse you of it, there's, 
there's some reality there. You're involved in that sin, and he's accusing you of it. And it's like, yeah, you did it. You haven't repented of it. You haven't confessed it to God. You're still involved in it, and Satan's going to point that out to the whole <coughs> spiritual realm, that you're doing that. If you're not, it's a false accusation, right? And when you get to a point in your life where in order for someone to knock your life down, they've got to come up with a lie out of whole cloth here. They have to completely fabricate this paper mache thing that has no reality to it and can be disproven, that you have a righteous life. Now, I'm not saying anyone here, including myself, is absolutely perfect in every detail, okay? But the kind of things that would take you down as a, from your job or from your ministry, or from, you, know, you, you can't involve yourself in those things. You know, I have a policy that I'll never be in a, in a building alone with a woman. Car, I, can, I trust myself and I trust this person implicitly, but I'm not going to put myself in a position where the accusation could be hurled at me. And that's a very important thing. You don't put yourself in those positions. There's a, you guard your testimony closely. You make sure that you're not open to those kind of accusations. And, and righteousness is that breastplate. Romans 10.4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may, may, may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Philippians 3.9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. We are in Christ, therefore his righteousness belongs to us, that we have that standing before God. And I'm not going to do anything that, that will alter the way I'm seen in that. I'm not going to do anything which takes my mind off of my position there. I'm going to live my life in a way that I cannot be con uh, accused, that I can stand in those times. It's something you got to do every day. Feet shod with the gospel of peace. Feet shod with the gospel of peace. Romans didn't use boots. They used like a, like a sandal on steroids kind of thing. It was a thing that protected their feet and their lower legs and they could march in these things for a long way. But feet shod with the preparation with the gospel of peace. This is feet which are willing to go forward in the battle. It's feet that carry us forward into the fight. It's feet on which we stand our ground, okay? The gospel of peace, that's our motivator. Jesus said, all authority is given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And you do that going on feet, and you're willing to approach other people who are dangerous and give them the word of God willing to approach other people to advance into this fight, okay? How beautiful are the feet of those that spread the gospel. I was a missionary. Well, my feet are ugly, okay? I got some ugly feet. In fact, my feet are so ugly, if I was, like, on the couch at home when I was a kid and I had my feet up on the couch and my brother could not look at my feet, he would take, like, a, a towel or a pillow or something and cover them up so he didn't have to be confronted with the ugliness of my gospel-sharing feet, my big toe kind of sticks out like this. It looks more like an opposable thumb than a toe. And yeah. So we're not literally, it's just, yeah, it's a beautiful thing for, to go and to spread the gospel. Psalm 37, 31, the law of their God is in their hearts and their feet do not slip. Romans 10, 15, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Not literally. Romans 16, 20, this is interesting, okay? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 
Everybody thinks that God's going to crush Satan. Yeah, but whose feet does he use to crush it, to crush him? The church. The Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet, his power being transmitted through our feet. And we don't think of ourselves in, in, in that line of battle. The shield of faith. It's interesting, the word for shield here, the Romans had different shields they used. Some, some of them were small, like a round shield that would be stuck on your arm and you could actually fight with it. And the other one was a large shield. Okay, that, that was that? Well, they did. They had a big square shield like this, bigger, bigger than this, this pulpit thing. And they would stand behind it. And they actually had shields like that that an archer would stand behind and a shield bearer would go forward with that shield. And you could stand behind it. The word uh, actually comes from the word for a door, like the door of a house. So that's the, the idea. Okay, the shield of faith is not some small little thing. It's like a full body covering to keep you safe in, the, in that battle space. Properly, it was a gate or a door used with a large oblong Roman shield, large enough to provide full protection from attack. And they were also not used individually. They were used in concert with everyone else. Everybody had one of those shields. So they would stand shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield. No gaps in that wall. And then the guys in the second rank would raise their shields over their heads. So you've got this solid oak leather-wrapped covering stopping all the arrows that are coming in. And that's the position that you fight from. And then through those gaps come the swords and the spears as the enemy gets close, and they can move in that formation. It's like a, like a human tank. And the shield of faith to stop all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Flaming arrows. I love watching these old movies, you know, where they show like the Romans and the knights and the armor and all that stuff. And, and I, I love it when they get all the guys with the arrows, they got the bows, and they're pulling them back, and the commander yells, Fire! They didn't have guns back then. They didn't fire anything until guns were made. They would say, loose, let the arrows go. Now, a flaming arrow, what's a flaming arrow all about? They always get it wrong in the movies. Okay, they always show some guy with like a rag wrapped around the end of the arrow, and they light it on fire, and they shoot him. That's not how it was done. Because if you do that, poof, it blows itself out as soon as you let go of the string. Ask me how I know. <laughs> I was once a kid, too, you know? What they actually had was a, like, a, like a twisted iron uh, cage on the front with a point on the end, and they would take pitch, a rag, with, with pine pitch or something very flammable in, in it, and in front of that they put a live coal, like a big hardwood coal out of a fire, and they'd stick that in. When you fire that, all of a sudden that coal is getting oxygen, like fed like a jet, and all that heat's going on that pitch. And then when it sticks, wherever, that, that fire sticks there and then starts to spread. And that's what Satan's trying to do with you. He's trying to light your world on fire. Where he has to do one dart, and then it keeps destroying, keeps destroying, keeps destroying until somebody comes and puts the fires out. And it's, that's the kind of destruction. He's not just trying to wound you. He's trying to burn your world down. And that's what this is all about, the flaming darts of the enemy. The word also applies to javelins, which did basically the same thing, but you get the idea. Um, the shield of faith. How does faith protect us like a shield? Faith is believing, right? We believe. We believe. We're standing in that. I know what God said about me, right? Do you believe you're holy? He tells you you are. Do you have faith in that? Are you standing in that? Are you saying, God, yeah, he's, 
He's given me this as a present possession. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. I'm not the same old person the enemy's bringing up. I'm not that same old guy. I'm a new creature. He's given me a new nature, one that obeys God and, and, and thinks sin is disgusting. Because every time you do it, you feel bad, right? When your old nature, that was a victory. If you were a thief and you stole something before you were a believer, it was a victory. Try it now. So feel the same. Because you have a new nature. You've been turned around. You've been transformed. You've been redeemed. All those things are true in your life. Do you believe it? Now, I'm not talking about believing it like the picture of that Lego. I'm talking about believing it like stepping on an actual Lego. Yeah, that's real. That happened. This is an actual thing. It's not a theory. Okay, what's the difference? Faith always leads to what? Action. Okay, you believe, good. You, I, you have works, I, you have faith, I have works. I will show you my faith by my works, right? My faith, what I believe, causes me to act in a certain way. And that is true. Every time you do something, it's because of what you believe. Every time you act, it's because of what you believe. If you believe a bee just flew into your shirt, you're going to act a certain way. Okay? And when you find out it's a grasshopper, you're going to act differently. That fear is going to go away. You're going to dance and strip off your shirt and go crazy and all that. And you find out it's it's just a ladybug. It's okay. No big deal. All right? You're always going to act upon your beliefs. You're always going to feel upon your beliefs, too. Everything you feel, all of your emotions are always connected to a fact, always connected to a belief, not a fact. Because nobody believes lies, right? Does anybody here believe lies? Oh, you, you raise your hand. You actually believe a lie? Which lie do you believe? Which lie are you willing to act upon? You know what I'm saying? We don't believe. We recognize the fact that we're deceivable, and we can believe lies. Okay? But... Sometimes those things just aren't so that we believe. I was in a house one time in, in rural Brazil. Okay, I'm doing a Bible study at this house. And there's a pillar, as big as these pillars, round, tree trunk, holding up the center of this house. And it was covered, you know, maybe 10, 20 coats of white paint. It has been painted and repainted and repainted. And I was just kind of, I leaned up on it with my hand and punched right through it. Oh my. It was just paint. The tree had been eaten by termites decades ago. You know, it was just like a paper mache webbing in the inside of this. And I punched right through the paint. Terribly embarrassed, but that thing was not holding up anything. It was only holding up paint. And it looked so solid. Like I could just lean on it with all my weight. And it was, no. Okay, faith allows us to challenge those bad beliefs, knowing what God says, I'm going to put faith in that, I'm going to believe what God says as opposed to what my family has said about me or what other people have spoken into my life because they were distorted too. I'm not, I'm not going to walk in that. I'm going to walk in the identity that Christ gave me in Scripture. I'm going to believe who he, who, who I am. I'm going to believe that his promises are valid, that he will sustain me, that he will provide everything he need, uh, that I need to do his will. Okay, now I can take a step of faith. Okay, faith you know, belief is, is saying that people can walk on water. Faith is actually doing it. Faith is stepping out of the boat onto the Sea of Galilee. And how, how, how quickly does the, does the Sea of Galilee firm up under a human foot? The nanosecond of faith. Okay, and that nanosecond that my foot or Peter's foot touched the water, that's the shield of faith. 
that I know what God, I'm going to act upon what God has said in my life. He tells me to go forward, I'm going to go forward. He tells me to avoid something, I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to believe God, I'm going to act according to what I've been shown and the truth that I've been given. Because we have faith, we act in faith and do something in response to our faith. It's not just mental assent and belief and I know the truth. No, you're going to act upon it. 1 Peter 1.5, who through faith are shielded us by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. That allows us to act. Okay, we're good. We can do this. Move forward. The helmet of salvation. I love this. It's mentioned other places in, uh, in Scripture. Isaiah 59, the helmet of salvation on his head. Nothing protects the mind, emotion, and will better than the assurance of salvation. Are you sure of your salvation? You're meant to be. That I am in Christ and he is in me. I am redeemed. I have, I have come back to life. I'm going to read you something here. It's kind of long. These are all different ways in the New Testament that, are, that expresses our salvation. We know what he has done for us on the cross. We know that we have eternal life. We know nothing will separate us from his love. We know we are baptized into Christ, wild branches grafted in, made alive to God, redeemed, no longer under condemnation, regenerated, washed, forgiven, justified, sanctified, adopted as God's children, dearly loved, co-heirs with Jesus, citizens of heaven, no longer under the dominion of Satan, passed over from death into life, sealed with the Holy Spirit, just to name a few. And if that doesn't stabilize your mind, get that checked. Okay? This is how God describes you in the Word of God, that He has done all these things for you, and that comprises the totality of your salvation. Wrap that thing around your head. The lies can't, they can bonk against it, but they can't get through. When you understand and believe all these things and know the totality of your salvation, it makes you fearless. Imagine going into a battle knowing that you cannot be touched. What would you do? How would you fight? Would that change the way you fight? Knowing that you are invincible. That's how Jesus comes back to this world to fight. Knowing you're in the battle and we're going to win this thing right now. In the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Nowhere have I seen more confusion than on this. It's the only piece of offensive gear that God gives us. The sword of the Spirit, and to take all doubt, which is the Word of God. And everybody who writes about this, not everybody, but most say that's the Bible. Partially right. That's the Bible. Mm. Realize when Paul wrote this, most of the New Testament, half the New Testament probably hadn't even been written. The Bible had not been collected and determined that these are the, these are the scriptural books. They had the Old Testament, but the New Testament was still a work in progress when Paul wrote this. I mean, he's writing this in the book of Ephesians, right? That was all brand new. He's not talking about the Bible here. The sword is the same word, uh, is the same word that, that, that Peter, when he cut off Malchus's ear, that's the same word for sword. It's like a short sword kind of thing. But it's not a little pocket knife. 
This is a, an offensive weapon. It's something you can use to attack with. Okay, the sword of the spirit. So they get the idea here. It's not just that I can, I'll cut you if you come near me. It's like, no, I'm coming at you with this sword. That's the kind of weapon that he's describing here. The word of God. Uh, the sword of the spirit is often confused with scripture or the Bible, typically translated in English from the Greek word graphe. And this word here for, sword, for word is not the word graphe, as in the writings, the scriptures. It's the word rhema, the spoken word. Rhema is different. People say that we employ the sword of the Spirit by memorizing, pondering it in our heart, meditating on it day and night, and those are all wonderful things, and you should be doing all of those. I'm not against the study of the Bible. I'm not against memorizing of Scripture. These things are essential to us employing the sword of the Spirit. If you don't know it, you can't employ it. If, you don't, if you're not sharp with the Word of God, you're not going to know what to say when the time comes. A swordsman doesn't just understand that he has a sword understands how to sharpen it, maintain it, how to carry it properly, okay? If he never actually draws the sword and uses it in battle, it's just a decoration or a status symbol. Like our dress troops, they walk through and they, have, they carry the sword and all that. They don't train with that sword. They don't know how to fight with that sword. It's a symbol of power and influence and rank and all that. And that, the word of God is not that. A swordsman thrusts and slashes at the enemy. If we never apply the sword to the enemy, it doesn't mean a thing. So then that word rhema, okay? Rhema, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which is the rhema of God, the spoken word made by a living voice, the word of God spoken out loud. That's interesting. It's not just, I have my Bible, I know my Bible, I memorize my Bible, all good stuff, okay? But now other people. I'm saying, no, what you're doing is sin. What you're doing is wrong. you got to knock that off. Not here in this church. Nope. Pastor Mac, I want to divorce my wife and marry my secretary. Could you do the ceremony? Absolutely not. John and Steve want to get married here in the church. Um, okay, bring your fiancés. You know, we'll talk. You guys all know we don't do that here. In fact, I was asked to do a gay wedding by two gay people that I knew have been evangelizing. And I said, absolutely not. That's hurtful. So why is it hurtful? We've already talked about this. I told you, you know, I, there's certain things I don't do. I don't give last rites to people who are dying because I'm not Catholic, right? There's a lot of all the religious things that people do in the world. I do a very narrow subset of those, right? My beliefs are here. I don't sacrifice bulls and goats. I don't do all kinds of things. Why would you, knowing what I believe and knowing how I live and knowing you know, what I believe about the Word of God, why would you ask me to do something completely outside the realm of my faith? And they, they said, well, we never thought about it that way, how we're being hurtful to you by asking you to go against your faith. I said, right. I'm just not going to go there. But where did that come from? That's the raiment. That's the Word. That's no. This is what God says. This is how I live. And you can use that with the enemy as well. Declaring the truth. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? He declared scripture right at him out loud and then finally told him, depart from me. That's using the truth. The lie is coming in. Now, the truth is this. This is where I stand. This is what God did for me. This is what God will do for you. We're not going to water things down. I'm going to confront people with their sin as God directs me to. Not out of a sense of personal offense, but in love. You're destroying yourselves. And here's how. Here's the way out. This is the word of God. Declaring that word out loud. 
Rhema, the sword of the Spirit, is not the word of God that you know. It is the word of God you declare to others. It's the truth you stand for in the face of opposition. It is the light spoken out loud to dispel the darkness. Rhema is the word of God in active confrontation with the lies and manipulations of Satan and his false teachers. Rhema knows nothing of keeping its mouth shut to preserve the peace. That is not the word of God spoken out loud. Oh, I'm not going to tell them that because they'd be offended. Okay, put your light out, hide your light, don't, don't let it shine don't, for, for fear of offense. When the truth is that their world needs to be burned down because it's destroying them. And you need to give them the truth in love. Second Corinthians, I got a few minutes here. I'm, I'm not going to keep, I, I will go an hour and a half on this, okay? Uh, but I'm not going to do that, okay? Second Corinthians 10 verses 3, 3 through 5 says this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What's a stronghold? I mean, they, literally, the word there is a fortified place, like a hilltop castle or fortress. We have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Literally, what God knows to be true. Okay? We have the power to destroy those strongholds and tear down those things. Now, he's talking about this in the context of conflict with people at a church. Okay? And we're going to come, we're going to tear down these strongholds okay, with, the, with the knowledge of God. We demolish arguments and pretensions, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And look what he says here. And we take every thought captive. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, this argument is not just a spiritual argument where I've got a problem with someone at church and we're going to deal this thing out, that this person's in disobedience and needs to be dealt with. We take every thought captive, what's coming into your head right now. And remember, demons can communicate. And if you open up space in your life for them, you're going to get their messaging. <laughs> not, this, is the, the, this takes discernment. Not every thought that comes into your head originates with your mind that you live in a spiritual world. In this world, Christ is in you. In that world, you are in Christ. And they are there, and they speak, and they communicate doctrines of demons, deceptions, temptations, ideas, arguments, the voices that people hear. You know this guy in Maine who shot up the bowling alley and all that horrible thing? Checked himself into a mental place a couple weeks ago for hearing voices. And the modern medical and psychological people will tell you, oh, that's just, he needs to be medicated. No, he doesn't. He needs Jesus. And those voices stop. You notice the voices never tell people to go pick up garbage along the highway. It's always, you know, kill your neighbor's dog and eat them, you know, kind of stuff. It's just sick. The voices are horrible, and they can go away. You don't have to keep hearing them. In Jesus, you have the authority to submit and then command them to depart, okay? But the idea here is to take every thought captive. What am I thinking? What is, what messaging am I getting? Quick example, I had a really, my daughter Karina has a mouth sometimes. My other daughter Erin's in the back. You have a mouth too sometimes. <laughs> she said something to me that really hurt. It was really offensive. I got really angry, and I held her in a place of unforgiveness. And I'm at work trying to work and write, and I can't, I, every time I just keep thinking about what she said and arguing with her in my head as if she's there thinking what I should have said, what I could say, all these different things, and it's all going back and forth. And Oh, wait a minute. 
I'm holding my child who I love desperately in a place of bitterness and unforgiveness, and I need to forgive her right now. I said, Lord, please forgive me for this bitter reaction I had to my daughter, and please, I, I forgive her. Please forgive her. Help us restore this thing. And, and, and now in Jesus' name, because of the blood of the cross, I command this demon which has been feeding this, these lies to me to depart. Go to Jesus to be dealt with. Silence. Total peace. Whoa. Spiritual bullets work. Spiritual authority works. But I had given him a place. I'm like, I'm angry at my daughter. Okay, I'm... He's like, and I'll tell you how to get what you should say. Oh, da, 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 da. Let's stir this thing up. Whoa, wait a minute. I'm taking these thoughts captive. No, that's not coming. That's not who, that's the Holy Spirit's not telling me that. Whoa, I'm in bitterness. Lord, forgive me. I repent, confess. Okay, be gone. That's the application of spiritual authority, and that's how it works. And it gets good, res- it gets results immediately. It's not like eventually my, my, I calmed down and, and thought right about my daughters. No, it's like right now I calm down. That thing left. And now I'm free to obey my God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you understand that, what fleeing looks like? And for some reason, the whole body of Christ has this idea of resisting the devil is to go into a clinch and let him pound on you. You ever seen a boxing match where a fighter goes into the clinch and the other guy runs? Ever? Has that ever happened? Yeah, John's back there. He's a boxer. You ever had that happen in a fight? You go into a clinch and that guy backs off? What do you do when somebody goes into the clinch? You pound him. Right. That's how it works. And for some reason, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Right? We're going to stand here and those gates are going to try and attack us and attack us. And we're... Gates don't attack stuff, people. Gates don't attack. They defend the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What's the church supposed to do in this, in this case? Kick in some doors. That's what we're supposed to do. And we think, oh, the gates of hell are, are going to attack us and not going to overcome us. So we can resist the devil going into a clinch. No, resist the devil in word and deed. That means come out swinging. Advance. I'm not going to put up with this thing he's trying to do with my family. I'm going to pray right. I'm going to stand in the armor of God, and I'm going to counterattack and drive him out of here with the authority that we have. And I encourage you. If you don't believe it from me, you study the Word of God and tell me where I'm wrong. Because I do this for a living. I study this stuff for a living. I'm writing curriculum about this. Okay? Not to put myself up or anything, but I was on the battlefield not knowing these things. Got our heads handed to us. Okay? Anyway, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for the, uh, the wonderful provision that you have given to us. You've left us here, Lord, and you've also protected us from the evil one. You've left us here in this fight, but you've given us powerful weapons and powerful defense in your wonderful, powerful name. Lord, I pray we would use it. I pray we'd learn how to use it. We have discernment to recognize the thoughts we need to take captive and that we would walk in the freedom and the grace that you provide. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.